Hello. Before we begin, a quick note. The Boy to Sleep podcast relies on you and sponsors, which means you will hear a quick advertisement before the beginning of tonight's episode. While the podcast is free, you are welcome to subscribe for just $2.99 per month, which supports the creation of this podcast and gives you an ad-free listening experience. Simply click the link in the show notes from your podcast app. Rest easy. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Parents and Children, published in 1897 and written by Charlotte M. Mason. This story looks at the unique dynamic between parents and children. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to each of you, wherever you are in the world. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week, whether it be through the website or their podcast app with a lovely review. One of the most rewarding aspects of this podcast is hearing from all of the listeners who found the podcast beneficial in helping them get a good night's rest. Thank you to all of the Spotify listeners who took the time to leave a response in the episode Q&A. Some of the listeners who responded on recent episode 277 include Hi Guy, Maver, Lorenzo Papa, Emily Rianne, Abby, and beyond. Each of you left such amazing responses, and I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you also to iTunes listener Googlebox DJ for your kind words and review. As always, a massive thank you goes to the patrons on Patreon that continue to support the podcast. Your monthly subscription allows me to continue bringing out more episodes, and without your support, I would not be able to do it. My goal is to keep this podcast free for those who need it. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to continue bringing out more episodes for those who need them. 
you can always say hello to me at theboytosleep.com website and you can find me on Instagram. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Parents and Children A Sequel to Home Education by Charlotte M. Mason Preface The following essays have appeared in the Parents' Review and were addressed from time to time to a body of parents who are making a practical study of the principles of education, the Parents' National Educational Union. The present volume is a sequel to The Home Education, Keegan, Paul and Co., a work which was the means of originating this union of parents. It is not too much to say that the parents' union exists to advance, with more or less method and with more or less steadfastness, a definite school of educational thought of which the two main principles are the recognition of the physical basis of habit, i.e., of the material side of education, and of the inspiring and formative power of the idea, i.e., of the material or spiritual side of education. These two guiding principles, covering as they do the whole field of human nature, should enable us to deal rationally with all the complex problems of education, and the object of the following essays is not to give an exhaustive application of these principles. The British Museum itself would hardly contain all the volumes needful for such an undertaking, but to give an example or a suggestion here and there as to how such and such a habit may be formed. Such and such a formative idea be implanted and fostered. The attention of the volume will account to the reader for what may seem a want of connected and exhaustive treatment of the subject, and for the iteration of the same principles in various connections. The author ventures to hope that the following hints and suggestions will not prove the less practically useful to busy parents because they rest on profound educational principles. Parents and Children, Chapter 1 The Family It is probable that no other educational thinker has succeeded in affecting parents so profoundly as did Rousseau. Emily is little read now, but how many current theories of the regimen proper for children have their unsuspected source? Everybody knows, and his contemporaries knew it better than we, that John Jacquel Rousseau had not enough sterling character to warrant him to pose an authority on any subject, least of all on that of education. He sets himself down a poor thing, and we see no cause to reject the evidence of his confessions. We are not carried away by the charm of his style. His forcible feebleness does not dazzle us. 
no man can say beyond that which he is, and there is a want of grit in his philosophic theories that removes most of them from the category of available thought. But Rousseau had the insight to perceive one of those patent truths which, somehow, it takes a genius to discover, and because truth is indeed prized above rubies, the perception of that truth gave him rank as a great teacher. Is John Jacques also among the prophets, people asked, and ask still, and that he had thousands of fervent disciples amongst the educated parents of Europe, together with the fact that his teaching has filtered into many a secluded home of our own day, is answer enough. Indeed, no other educationalist has had a tith of the influence exercised by Rousseau. Under the spell of his teaching, people in the fashionable world, like that Russian princess Galitsyn, forsook society and went off with their children to some quiet corner, where they could devote every hour of the day, and every power they had, to the fulfilment of the duties which devolve upon parents. Courtly mothers retired from the world, sometimes even left their husbands to work hard at the classics, mathematics, sciences, that they might with their own lips instruct their children. What else am I for, they asked. And the feeling spread that the bringing up of the children was the one work of primary importance for men and women. Whatever extravagance he had seen fit to advance, Rousseau would still have found a following. Because he had chanced to touch a spring that opened many hearts, he was one of the few educationalists who had made his appeal to the parental instincts. He did not say, we have no hope of the parents, let us work for the children. Such are the faint-hearted and pessimistic things we say today. What he said was, in effect, fathers and mothers, this is your work, and you only can do it. It rests with you, parents of young children, to be the saviours of society unto a thousand generations. Nothing else matters. The avocations about which people weary themselves are as foolish child's play compared with this one serious business of bringing up our children in advance of ourselves. People listened as we have seen. The response to his teaching was such a letting out of the waters of parental enthusiasm as has never been known before nor since. And Rousseau, weak and little worthy, was a preacher of righteousness in this, that he turned the hearts of the fathers to the children and so far made ready a people prepared for the Lord. But alas... Having secured the foundation, he had little better than wood, hay and stubble to offer to the builders. Rousseau succeeded, as he deserved to succeed, in awaking many parents to the binding character, the vast range, 
the profound seriousness of parental obligations. He failed and deserved to fail, as he offered his own crude conceits by way of an educational code. But his success is very cheering. He perceived that God placed the training of every child in the hands of two, a father and a mother, and the response to this teaching proved that, as the waters answer to the drawing of the moon, so do the hearts of parents rise to the idea of the great work committed to them. Though it is true, no doubt, that every parent is conscious of unwritten laws, more or less definite and noble according to his own status. Yet an attempt, however slight, to codify these laws may be interesting to parents. The family is the unit of the nation. This pregnant saying suggests some aspects of the parent's calling. From time to time, in all ages of the world, communistic societies have arisen sometimes for the sake of cooperation in a great work, social or religious, more recently by way of protest against inequalities of condition. But in every case, the fundamental rule of such societies is that the members shall have all things in common. We are apt to think in our careless way that such attempts at communistic association are foredoomed to failure. But that is not the case. In the United States, perhaps because hired labour is less easy to obtain than it is with us, they appear to have found a congenial soil, and their many well-regulated communistic bodies flourish. There are failures, too, many and disastrous, and it appears that these may usually be traced to one cause, a government enfeebled by the attempt to combine democratic and communistic principles, to dwell together in a common life, while each does what is right in his own eyes. A communistic body can thrive only under a vigorous and absolute rule, a favourite dream of socialism is, or was until the idea of collectivism obtained, that each state of Europe should be divided into an infinite number of small self-contained communes. Now, it sometimes happens that the thing we desire is already realised, had we eyes to see. The family is practically a commune, in the family, the undivided property is enjoyed by all the members in common, and in the family there is equality of social condition, with diversity of duties. In lands where patriarchal practices still obtain, the family merges into the tribe, and the head of the family is the chief of the tribe, a very absolute sovereign indeed. In our own country, families are usually small parents and their immediate offspring, with the attendants and belongings which naturally gather to a household, and let it not be forgotten, form part of the family. The smallness of the family tends to obscure its character, 
and we see no force in the phrase at the head of this chapter. We do not perceive that, if the unit of the nation is the natural commune, the family then is the family the social microcosm, pledged to carry on with itself all the functions of the state, with the delicacy, precision, and fullness of detail proper to work done on a small scale. It by no means follows from this communistic view of the family that the domestic policy should be a policy of isolation on the contrary. It is not too much to say that a nation is civilised in proportion as it is able to establish close and friendly relations with other nations and that, not with one or two, but with many, and conversely that a nation is barbarous in proportion to its isolation, and does not a family decline in intelligence and virtue, when from generation to generation it keeps itself to itself. Again, it is probable that a nation is healthy in proportion as it has its own proper outlets, its colonies and dependencies, which it is ever solicitous to include in the national life. So of the nation in miniature, the family, the struggling families at the back, the orphanage, the mission, the necessities of our acquaintance, are they not fit for the sustenance of the family in the higher life? But it is not enough that the family commune maintain neighbourly relations with other such communes, and towards the stranger within the gates. The family is the unit of the nation, and the nation is an organic whole, a living body built up like the natural body, of an infinite number of living organisms. It is only as it contributes its quota towards the national life that the life of the family is complete. Public interests must be shared, public work taken up, the public welfare cherished. In a word, its integrity with the nation must be preserved, or the family ceases to be part of a living whole and becomes positively injurious as decayed tissue in the animal organism. Nor are the interests of the family limited to those of the nation, as it is the part of the nation to maintain wider relations, to be in touch with all the world, to be ever in advance in the great march of human progress. So is this the attitude which is incumbent on each unit of the nation, each family, as an integral part of the whole. Here is the simple and natural realisation of the noble dream of fraternity, each individual attached to a family by ties of love where not of blood. The families united in a federal bond to form the nation, the nation's confederate in love and emulous in virtue, and all nations and their families playing their several parts as little children about the feet and under the smile of the Almighty Father. Here is the divine order which every family is called upon to fulfil.
a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, and therefore it matters infinitely that every family should realise the nature and the obligations of the family bond. As water cannot rise above its source, neither can we live at a higher level than that of the conception we form of our place and use in life. Let us ask the question, has this of regarding all education and all civil and social relations from the standpoint of the family any practical outcome? So much so that perhaps there is hardly a problem of life for which it does not contain the solution. For example, what shall we teach our children? Is there one subject that claims our attention more than another? Yes, there is a subject or class of subjects which has an imperative moral claim upon us. It is the duty of the nation to maintain relations of brotherly kindness with other nations. Therefore, it is the duty of every family, as an integral part of the nation, to be able to hold brotherly speech with the families of other nations as opportunities arise. Therefore, to acquire the speech of neighbouring nations is not only to secure an inlet of knowledge and a means of culture, but is a duty of the higher morality, the morality of the family, which aims at universal brotherhood. Therefore, every family would do well to cultivate two languages beside the mother tongue, even in the nursery. Again, a fair young Englishwoman was staying with her mother at a German co-house. They were the only English people present and probably forgot that the Germans are better linguists than we. The young lady sat through the long meals with her book, hardly interrupting her reading to eat and addressing no more than one or two remarks to her mother. As I wonder what the mess is, or how much longer shall we have to sit with those tiresome people? Had she remembered that no family can live to itself, that she and her mother represented England, were England for that little German community, she would have imitated the courteous greetings which the German ladies bestowed on their neighbours. But we must leave further consideration of this great subject and conclude with a striking passage from Mr. Morley's appreciation of Emily. Education slowly came to be thought of in connection with the family. The improvement of ideas upon education was only one phase of the general movement towards the restoration of the family which was so striking a spectacle in France after the middle of the century. Education now came to comprehend the whole system of the relations between parents and their children, from earliest infancy to maturity. The direction of such wider feeling about these relations tended strongly towards an increased closeness in them, more intimacy, and a more continuous suffusion of tenderness and long attachment.
his labours in this great cause, the restoration of the family, give Rousseau a claim upon the gratitude and respect of mankind. It has proved a lasting, solid work. To this day, family relations in France are more gracious, more tender, more close and more inclusive than they are with us. They are more expansive too, leading to generally benign and friendly behaviour, and so strong and satisfying is the family bond, that the young people find little necessity to fall in love. The mother lays herself out for the friendship of her young daughters, who respond with the entire loyalty and devotion, and Zola, notwithstanding, French maidens are wonderfully pure, simple, and sweet, because their affections are abundantly satisfied. Possibly the restoration of the family is a labour that invites us here in England, each within the radius of our own hearth. For there is little doubt that the family bond is more lax amongst us than it was two or three generations ago. Perhaps nowhere is family life of more idyllic loveliness than where we see it at its best in English homes. But the wise ever find some new thing to learn. Though a nation as an individual must act on the lines of its own character, and we are on the whole well content with our English homes, yet we might learn something from the inclusiveness of the French family, where mother-in-law and father-in-law, aunt and cousins, widow and spinster are cherished, and a hundred small officers devised for dependents who would be in the way in an English home. The result is that the children have a wider range for the practice of the thousand sweet attentions and self-restraints which make home life lovely. No doubt the medal has its adverse. There is probably much in French home life which we should shrink from, nevertheless. It offers object lessons which we should do well to study. Let us continue our consideration of the family as the nation in miniature, with the responsibilities, the rights, and the requirements of the nation. The parents represent the government, but here, the government is ever an absolute monarchy, conditioned very loosely by the law of the land, but very closely by that law more or less of which every parent bears engraved on his conscience. Some attain the levels of high thinking, and come down from the mount with beaming countenance and the tables of the law intact. Others fail to reach the difficult heights, and are content with such fragments of the broken tables as they pick up below. But be his knowledge of the law little or much, no parent escapes the call to rule. Now, the first thing we ask for in a ruler, is he able to rule? Does he know how to maintain his authority? A ruler who fails to govern is like an unjust judge, an impious priest, 
an ignorant teacher, that is, he fails in the essential attribute of his office. This is even more true in the family than in the state. The king may rule by deputy. Helpers he may have, but the moment he makes over his functions and authority to another, the rights of parenthood belong to that other, and not to him. Who does not know of the heartburnings that arise when Anglo-Indian parents come home, to find their children's affections given to others, their duty owing to others, and they, the parents, sources of pleasure like the godmother of the fairy tale, but having no authority over their children. And all this, nobody's fault, for the guardians at home have done their best to keep the children loyal to the parents abroad. Here is indicated a rock upon which the heads of families sometimes make shipwreck. They regard parental authority as inherent in them, a property which may lie dormant, but is not to be separated from the state of parenthood. They may allow their children from infancy upwards to do what is right in their own eyes. And then, Lear turns and makes his plaint to the wind and cries, sharper than a serpent's tooth it is, to have a thankless child. But Lear has been all the time divesting himself of the honour and authority that belong to him, and giving his rights to the children. Here he tells us why. The biting anguish is the thankless child. He has been laying himself out for the thanks of his children. That they should think him a fond father has been more to him than the duty he owes them. And in proportion as he omits his duty, are they oblivious of theirs? Possibly the unregulated love of approbation in devoted parents has more share in the undoing of families than any other single cause. A writer of today represents a mother as saying, But you are not afraid of me, Bessie. No, indeed. Who could be afraid of a dear, sweet, soft, little mother like you? And such praise is sweet in the eyes of many a fond mother, hungering for the love and liking of her children, and not perceiving that words like these in the mouth of a child are as treasonable as words of defiance. Authority is laid down at other shrines than that of popularity, and, meantime, the exercise of authority devolves upon Antonio. Is it any wonder that the habit of authority fits the usurper like a glove, and that Prospero finds himself ousted from the office he failed to fill? Even so, the busy parent, occupied with many cares, awakes to find the authority he has failed to wield has dropped out of his hands, perhaps has been picked up by others less fit, and a daughter is given over to the charge of a neighbouring family, 
while father and mother hunt for rare prints. In other cases, the love of an easy life tempts parents to let things take their course. The children are good children and won't go far wrong, we are told. And very likely, it is true. But however good the children be, the parents owe it to society to make them better than they are, and to bless the world with people, not merely good-natured and well-disposed, but good of set purpose and endeavour. The love of ease, the love of favour, the claims of other work, are only some of the causes which lead to a result disastrous to society, the abdication of parents. When we come to consider the nature and uses of the parents' authority, we shall see that such abdication is as immoral as it is mischievous. Meantime, it is well worthwhile to notice that the causes which lead parents to resign the position of domestic rulers are resolvable into one. The office is too troublesome, too laborious. The temptation which assails parents is the same which has led many a crowned head to seek ease in the cloister. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown, if it be the natural crown of parenthood. The apostolic counsel of diligence in ruling throws light upon the nature and aim of authority. It is no longer a matter of personal honour and dignity. Authority is for use and service, and the honour that goes with it is only for the better service of those under authority. The arbitrary parent, the exacting parent who claims this, and that of deference and duty because he is a parent, all for his own honour and glory, is more hopelessly in the wrong than the parent who practically abdicates the majesty of parenthood is hedged round with observances only because it is good for children to faithfully serve, honour, and humbly obey their natural rulers. Only at home can children be trained in the chivalrous temper of proud submission and dignified obedience. And if the parents do not inspire and foster deference, reverence, and loyalty... How shall these crowning graces of character thrive in a hard and emulous world? It is perhaps a little difficult to maintain an attitude of authority in these democratic days, when even educationalists counsel that children be treated on equal terms from the very beginning. But the children themselves come to our aid. The sweet humility and dependence natural to them fosters the gentle dignity, the sukhorn of reserve, which is becoming in honour of parents. It is not open to parents either to lay aside or to sink under the burden of the honour laid upon them, and no doubt we have all seen the fullest, freest flow of confidence, sympathy, and love between parent and child, 
where the mother sits as a queen among her children, and the father is honoured as a crowned head. The fact that there are two parents, each to lend honour to the other, yet free from restraint in each other's presence, makes it the easier to maintain the impalpable state of parenthood. And the presence of the slight, sweet, undefined feeling of dignity in the household is the very first condition for the bringing up of loyal, honourable men and women, capable of reverence and apt to win respect. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I also hope that you're feeling a little drowsy. Until next time, and good night.